Listener note, this podcast was created as an adjunct for those studying for the PCS exam. By no means do we guarantee that one will pass the exam solely by listening to this podcast. We encourage all those studying for the exam to put the appropriate time and effort into their studying using resources recommended by the ABPTS and the APTA. It is not allowed to discuss test content and we will not accept any questions related to test content. While we will do our best to provide the most accurate information, if you feel as though we have stated something that is incorrect, please contact us via Instagram at Pushing Pediatrics. Hi, I'm Sheila. And I'm Sarah. And welcome to Pushing Pediatrics, an educational podcast for physical therapists created to help those studying for the Pediatric Certified Specialist exam and anyone else interested in learning more about pediatric physical therapy. Welcome to your Fact Sheet Friday. Happy Friday, everyone. I'm going to review the fact sheets today that are related to the NICU. So we're going to start with the first one, which is interventions for positional foot deformities in the neonate. These are all specific to the NICU. So positional foot deformities are super common pediatric orthopedic conditions, and they may affect bones, tendons, and the muscles in the foot. Positioning, splinting, therapeutic taping, and casting are all options for treatment of foot deformities in the NICU, but they do require advanced training to implement effectively. This fact sheet discusses interventions for the management of flexible aspects of positional foot deformities often seen in the neonate. The fact sheet has a great table outlining the types of positional foot deformities. These include preterm postnatal positional foot deformation, metatarsus adductus, calcaneal valgus, talipes equinovaris, which is also clubfoot, congenital vertical talus, which is also known as a rocker bottom foot. Let's talk really quickly about the clinical presentation of these. So the preterm positional foot deformity is a flexible foot deformity presenting as poor progression towards a dorsiflexed forefoot with age-appropriate calcaneal position. It is managed with positioning, stretching, splinting, and taping. Metatarsus adductus is a condition with a flexible hind foot and the metatarsals, which are deviated medially. It can be flexible or rigid. Flexible deformities can be managed with stretching, splinting, and taping, while rigid deformities are going to require casting or surgical intervention. Severity can be measured using the Black scale. Calcaneal valgus presents with excessive hind foot dorsiflexion. It is flexible and can be managed with stretching, splinting, and taping. Clubfoot is identified by a cavus position, adduction of the forefoot, a hindfoot in varus, equinus, and a leg that's internally rotated. Extrinsic presentation will have soft tissue flexibility and can be managed more conservatively with splinting, taping, and casting. Intrinsic presentation with a rigid body frame will require more aggressive treatment protocol like surgery. Congenital vertical talus is known as rocker bottom. Clinical presentation is the talus in a valgus and equinus position. The talonavicular joint is dislocated, causing that rocker bottom, and the forefoot is dorsiflexed. This is a rigid deformity and requires surgical intervention and or casting. 
The fact sheet also presents contraindications, precautions, and considerations in treatment of these deformities. Strict contraindications are as follows. Physiological instability, acute fracture, skin breakdown or open wounds, an impaired perfusion, or a fixed deformity. The goals of intervention are similar to the goals we always have. Achieve functional position and alignment. Prevent loss of range or improve range of motion. Address family and caregiver goals. Educate the family and caregivers and minimize the need for surgical intervention if possible. Some specific things to keep in mind when treating the neonate. You need to be thoughtful of possible overcorrection because neonates' tissues respond quickly to deformational forces. Another important consideration is to use low load and prolonged stretch and continuously reassess and adapt. Make sure you review the fact sheet for detailed descriptions of interventions suggested in relation to the use of the neonate. It details positioning, range of motion, manual therapy, splinting, taping, and casting. Make sure you're familiar with these techniques because as you are thinking about implementing these in a treatment plan, you also need to be comfortable explaining to families what you're doing. The families need to be involved and their goals need to be considered. Make sure you are constantly educating. Moving on to our next fact sheet, which is positioning the medically fragile preterm infant in the NICU. This is so important. You're going to hear more about this in the NICU chapter, but this fact sheet was fabulous. Infants born in early preterm do not experience the squish of the uterus that happens during the third trimester of pregnancy. The third trimester is critical for that oh-so-important facilitation of midline. Physiological flexion is a term you will hear over and over when studying NICU content. Physiological flexion is a position characterized by shoulder flexion, scapular protraction, hip and knee flexion, and a posterior pelvic tilt. It is an ideal posture that fosters efficient achievement of and progression through early motor milestones. Preterm infants have reduced flexor strength, difficulty counteracting gravity, and they lack boundaries. We need to offer appropriate positioning so they can have proper joint alignment and better self-regulation and sleep. Good positioning allows for improved respiration, digestion, and the ability for the baby to progress age-appropriate developmental skills. The fact sheet goes through a long list of both short-term and long-term impairments that can be a result of suboptimal positioning of the neonate. Some of these things might include a cervical rotation preference, a frog-legged posture, or difficulty bringing their hands to midline for self-calming skills. All of these things can be improved with proper positioning. Obviously, we are always working within the constraints of the medical needs of the child. We may need to consider the stability of the infant, any drains, lines, or tubes that may affect positioning, or any anatomic anomalies. The fact sheet outlines barriers to optimal positioning for you in more detail. The uterus provides circumferential boundaries that create a bias for flexion, and the goal of positioning the baby is always going to be to recreate this as much as possible on the outside. There's a lot of fancy and commercially available positioners available, but using a blanket roll or soft sheet can do just as well. The fact sheet ends with a fantastic table outlining positioning of the neonate in key positions, including supine, prone, sideline, and kangaroo care positioning. I would definitely print this chart out for reference. 
The last fact sheet I'm going to talk about is the basics of neonatal PT practice roles and training fact sheet. It outlines the advanced competencies required to practice in the NICU setting. The fact sheet discusses that neonatal physical therapy mentoring should be conducted by teams, including nurses, neonatologists, and neonatal therapists, including PT, OT, and speech, to cover all the core principles guiding care for this vulnerable population. In order to work in the NICU, the physical therapist must have a solid knowledge base. You're going to need to be familiar with theoretical principles like family-centered care, synactive theory of development, dynamic systems, and neuronal group selection. They also need to have a strong knowledge of the ICF model. Additionally, the PT needs to have a strong foundational understanding of typical development of the CNS and musculoskeletal system. They need to understand behavioral state regulation and behavioral stress cues. It is also super important to understand social development so you can support infant and parent interactions. It is also important to understand risk factors in the neonates. To be successful in the NICU, you definitely need to be aware of the various neonatal assessments and interventions. In addition to all of the physical therapy components, you need to be a good team member with strong communication skills. You will be communicating regularly with a large hospital team as well as with families. When examining the neonate, you need to be aware of the signs for physiologic and behavioral readiness. You're going to need to be comfortable with monitoring autonomic, behavioral state, and motor stability throughout an examination. This includes knowing the physiological ranges for things like blood pressure, pulse ox, respiratory rate, etc. The NICU is a lot of observing, and you will be doing minimal contact examination techniques. You will be determining when standardized assessment is safe to perform and clinically warranted. Another important milestone is determining the need for and completing oral motor or feeding readiness assessments, and you need to be aware of the signs of this. Be confident in positioning, handling, splinting, and providing oral motor intervention in preparation for oral feeding are all important components for interventions. Last, as possibly the most important role of the PT in the NICU is developing and implementing parent and caregiver education programs for adult learners with diverse backgrounds. That wraps up the NICU fact sheets. We'll discuss a lot of this information again when we cover the NICU chapter in Campbell. So if it feels a little confusing, don't worry, we will hit this information again. The next fact sheet that we are going to talk about is gross motor considerations for a successful transition from part C to part B. We will go over the IDEA in a future episode, but if you haven't taken a look at it yet, this is your sign. This fact sheet is short and sweet, but is very informative. It discusses a timeline to ensure a smooth transition for infants and toddlers with disabilities under the age of three from Part C to Part B services, aka from early intervention to school-based services. There is a really nice timeline on, on the fact sheet to follow along with. The transition should begin about 12 months out with considering the child's mobility. Can the child move from place to place? How do they accomplish movement? If yes, you should evaluate the school setting and determine if they can move around the classroom, stairs, run, jump, etc. If no, you need to evaluate what is causing the delays or limiting their progress and participation. 
equipment needs should be evaluated 12 to nine months out. You need to determine what is needed for mobility, standing, sitting at a classroom table, and assistive devices to make the child successful and allow them to participate with their classmates and in classroom routines. The transition planning meeting should occur six to four months out. Ease of access to school campus, routines, and potential barriers to participation should be discussed. All equipment should be ordered at this point. Formal assessments and eligibility determination should occur three months out. The evaluations will be completed as required by local, state, and federal guidelines to determine if the child is eligible for school services. The Individualized Education Program, or the IEP, meeting should occur one month out. The school team should work together to write goals to address needs for participation in school activities and routines. The IEP needs to be comprehensive and individualized. All goals should be related to participation in school activities and routines. Star that, put circles around it, fireworks around it. That's really, really important when we're talking about the IEP. Definitely. About one to three months after transition, a post-transition reassessment should be done to make sure that progress is being made. Progress can be measured by student engagement with adults and classmates and whether the child is comfortable in the new setting. The next fact sheet we're going to talk about is the comparison of EI and hospital slash clinic-based physical therapy services. This is a really nice fact sheet that breaks down the similarities and differences between the two practice settings. EI services are for infants or toddlers with developmental delays or disabilities ages birth to their third birthday and their families. The goal of EI is to enhance the development of infants and toddlers with disabilities and enhance the capacity of their families to meet the child's needs. Hospital and clinic-based therapy services are for children birth through 21 years of age. The goal of these clinics is to regain function or improve overall function. The fact sheet has two really nice charts listed that are easy to read that detail the similarities between EI and hospital-based or clinic-based physical therapy, as well as the differences. Some examples of the similarities include that physical therapists in both settings apply the best evidence and best practices in pediatric physical therapy. They both use the ICF model, there it is again, and they both provide family-centered care. If you haven't thought about family-centered care, here is your sign to read up on it and think about it. It came up frequently during our studying. Some differences that the fact sheet discusses include what is the focus of PT? Who is eligible for PT? Who is the source of referral? What is the evaluation procedure? Who decides the need and scope of physical therapy practice? Where do physical therapy services occur? How are physical therapy services delivered and for how long? How are services documented? Who pays? And lastly, when does transition and discharge planning occur? I definitely think for people that don't regularly practice in the school setting, this is the stuff that's really, really challenging because there, it is really different. Make sure if this is confusing to reach out to us. Sarah is an amazing resource because she works in the schools. 
reach out to other colleagues, reach out to your people that you might work alongside in your community. The school stuff is really important. And if you've worked in outpatient or hospital-based services your whole career, it's just an area that is very, very different. So again, reach out to us if you have any questions. The MedBridge content also does a really nice job going through the IDEA and all of that kind of stuff. I think it's in the school-based section of the PCS track on MedBridge, but it was really informative. It broke it down really well. The slides were really nice to download, and I think it helped us during our studying a lot. Um, So that would definitely be another resource to look at as well. Thank you all so much for listening to Pushing Pediatrics. You can follow us on Instagram at Pushing Pediatrics. We would love to hear from you. So send us questions, suggestions, things you want to hear more of, and things you'd maybe want to hear less of. We will talk to you guys next week. And remember, you totally got this.